But let's get to the Olympics because, as I said a moment ago, we are, give or take, six weeks away from the opening of the games. The athletes, the Canadian teams are all being introduced. We're getting press releases and emails every day about the names, the people who are going to be going to Rio. And yet at the same time as all this excitement is happening, we are hearing some dire, difficult things about what is happening in Rio. And it got me wondering, I know that there's always, before Vancouver Olympics, there were concerns about some things. Before Sochi, there were concerns about things. Before Beijing, there were concerns about things. This does, however, seem to me to be a far louder chorus of critics. I just don't know if I'm correct in that. Michael Heine is the head of the International Center for Olympic Studies at Western University. They actually study this stuff. This is what they do. Uh, he joins me now. Dr. Heine, thanks for doing this tonight. Thanks for having me. So, uh, as I said off the top, we are hearing so many difficult and potentially horrible things coming out of Rio as far as disease and, and building and everything else. Is this typical six weeks before an Olympics, or is this somehow a little more unusual? I think in this case it's a little more unusual. The problems that Rio still has to manage are pretty intense. The problems in Sochi or London 2012 or in Beijing were not nearly as pressing in 2008. So the folks in Rio will have some fancy managing to do before they're ready to rumble, I think. Do and again, these things, we always hear this stuff. We always hear of problems, not always the same problems. Do they typically get louder leading up to the opening ceremony and then die off, or do they get quieter leading up to the opening ceremony? Uh, I think usually they get quieter uh, as the opening ceremony approaches because the facilities are put in place at the last minute. Things get ready. The camera starts to roll, and importantly, the visitors come in. And that really tends to change the atmosphere of the place. And that then is the story that we receive that's told to us about the Olympics. However, in the case of Rio, you mentioned some of the problems that the folks there still have to manage and some of that has to do with factors that are completely outside the control of the Rio Olympic Committee, of course. The recession in Brazil is fierce. They have very significant political corruption scandals that they have to manage. Then they have the additional problem of the Zika virus that your listeners probably have heard about. Some of the things are difficult to manage, and they are not of the making of the Olympic folks in Rio. It's a tough situation. Well, and, and yeah, you, you, you touch on some of them. We also have uh, stories that the transportation system is not ready to go to get people around. We've heard endless stories and they're frankly uh repulsive quite of the pollution in the harbor and things like that where people are going to be competing and you know human waste floating around and stuff which is you know no time to fix it now but is really disgusting and now we have this thing yesterday or the day before in the airport in the rio airport a bunch of police officers are protesting and they're holding up a sign saying welcome to hell you're not going to be safe in rio that can't be really all that reassuring for people getting off a plane no, it cannot, not at all, and I'll be going myself, so I can assure you I take note of these kinds of actions in particular. And as your readers, your listeners probably may know, this has to do with the economic problems that they have in Rio. The city just last week declared a state of economic emergency, and that was one of the reasons for the police and the safety security services not getting paid uh, their, their 
efficiency was reduced thereby. But just two or three days ago, the federal Brazilian government gave the city and the province a, an emergency loan of up to $15 billion over the next three years to address some of these issues fairly immediately. As you can imagine, the last thing that the Olympic organizers want to happen is to have any major security breaches. Well, let's talk about that for a second, Dr. Heine, because this there are a bunch of things, as you alluded to, that are completely outside the control of the Olympic people. The Zika virus, I mean, that's just one of those things that, you know, what do you do? There's nothing that any, I mean, if it happened in any Olympic venue, you've got to deal with that, and that's out of control. But we just had a situation, as everybody knows, with a terror attack in Orlando. Uh, yesterday or the day before, we just had a terror attack at the Turkish airport. It's not like terrorists are not active right now. And I, I, without being over the top and without sort of creating a panic, it seems that if you've got an Olympics where even the people providing the security are saying, you're not secure here, boy, if there's ever a place where it seems that this is susceptible to an attack, it would seem to be Rio. In a way, you're probably right. On the other hand, the Brazilian government and the local authorities there will mobilize probably about, well, the number is not entirely set, between 85,000 and 120,000 security personnel, including, of course, the police who went to the airport to warn arriving travelers, as you mentioned. Um, by the time the Olympics open, the security situation, to the extent that it can be managed from the Brazilian perspective, will be in place. I'm pretty sure about that. On the other hand, an event as large as the Olympics, it's almost impossible to secure 100% against people with evil intents of potential terrorist attacks. Well, unless yeah, unless you do what they did in Sochi, right, where you create this city within a city that has so many layers of security that really you couldn't get in unless you were an athlete or had a ticket. That is pretty much the same model they will try to apply in Rio. Again, the infrastructure of Rio and the infrastructure of the country is not exactly third world, but it's not nearly as well developed as what we're used to in Canada or even in Russia in that sense. So the infrastructure is less well developed, and that will also affect the security preparations up to a point, I think. So... Who then, when you look at all these problems, and and again, we don't know if once the cameras start to roll, if all this is forgotten, but in the meantime, when you look at all these problems, all these challenges, who do we, is this an indictment of Rio, or is this an indictment of the International Olympic Committee that chose Rio and put the Olympics in a place that could have these problems? I would have to say, if anybody has to be indicted, it would be the IOC, uh, in fairness, though, it has to be said, the IOC was trying to make a political point and a political statement by putting the Olympics finally, A, into South and Latin America, and B, into a not quite but almost third world country. So the political intent is honorable, I think, but the consequences at the organizational level are pretty severe right now. But again, as I said at the outset, some of these problems just couldn't have been foreseen in all fairness. But has it helped or has it hurt? Because people will remember that it was just two years ago that the World Cup of Soccer was in Brazil, 
And so on the one hand, you could say, okay, you know what? Uh, we were able to do a test run of organizing and volunteers and all the rest because we had another huge event. The flip side, though, Doctor, is that it cost billions of dollars to build those stadia and to put the World Cup all over Brazil, which may have tapped out the finances. So was it a benefit or a curse that they had the World Cup there just recently? For Rio itself, it was a benefit because there the organization was in place. Many of the other stadiums that they built in other cities don't play a role in the Olympics, of course. Uh, the money for the Olympics would have been allocated regardless of the World Cup of soccer or not. But then the recession, of course, hammered Brazil, and it is still hammering Brazil. On top of which you have the political corruption scandal, which also has an economic impact, of course, because it simply slows down economic activity to a significant degree also. On the other hand, you are absolutely right. These events cost a huge amount of money. And sometimes you do have to discuss quite seriously whether that money shouldn't be spent on uh, other things that also need to be done very significantly. And, you know, it's also true that many of these facilities, once the event is gone, they don't have a very good use case. Mm. That's, that's just a fact. Yeah, I can't remember. Can you remember another country, let alone a city, another country that has hosted two massive world sporting events like the World Cup and the Olympics this close together in rapid succession? Not in recent years, no. You're correct. So, in fact, there may be some spillover. Uh, On the other hand, we all know, and your listeners probably know, that Brazil is a soccer nation in particular. So the impact of soccer even compared to Olympic sports, always is far more significant in Brazil in that regard. When the Olympics actually start, when they get everybody moved in and the torch is lit and the competition begins, do you expect, with the money they've spent to buy the rights for this, will the broadcasters that are covering this show us the warts if the warts exist when things get going, or will this be glossed over? of research we do at our center actually typically the downside to these kinds of mega events and the kind of pressures they put on host cities and host countries well you you know you discuss them on the political pages or you discuss them in the economics pages but when it comes down to the sports uh, you don't you will not hear about it or very little which is, I mean, it seems as though that's an abdication of part of your responsibility, I would think. But again, on the other hand, if you've just paid hundreds of millions of dollars, you don't really want to paint a lousy picture. Well, of course not. <laughs> that's exactly the point. And you make a very good point there, because the IOC is, of course, in particular responsible to its sponsors, of which they have a fairly significant number, who pay a lot of money and who want to associate their brand with a very specific Olympic narrative. And they, of course, as you say, they don't want any of the warts or any of the hiccups or any of the really significant problems that you might find when you look behind the front lines. Um, You just cannot associate that with your brand when it is associated with the Olympic brand. You know, just literally as we're speaking here, a story has moved online from The Guardian over in England. 
uh, which which says mutilated body washes up on Rio Beach that is to be used for Olympic Beach volleyball. And I, you know, again, it's a horrible story. It talks about the crime and the the corruption that's there. But again, I, let me go back to that previous question. If this had happened when the games were on, if a dead body washes up on one of the locations where the games are going to be, I really wonder if the broadcasters that have paid for the rights are going to tell us that. I'm sure it would come out. Some journalists would tell us, but maybe not the broadcasters. Maybe not the broadcasters. You're absolutely right. But on the other hand, we have changed playing field, of course, to the rise of social media. So right. These kind of things can absolutely no longer be swept under the carpet. The IOC simply doesn't have control over that part of the media production. It's impossible. But the IOC and its sponsoring partners will do their level best to present a very clean story story by focusing on sports and medals and the joy of competition. All of that also exists, let's not forget that, exclusively. Well, yeah, and we've just got a minute or so here left here. Let me get to that, because I did want to ask you about that, and you, br- you bring us to the athletes. These are people, these are athletes who have trained, most of them, for, at, for the last four years, maybe longer than the last four years. Is all this unfair to them? Because they get, they're the, they're the show, but in some ways they become the pawns in this, and if this thing doesn't go well, how does that impact on the athletes? Well, I mean, for many of them, it represents a career break, as it were. I mean, as you say, they work very hard for years and years and years to get to this one very specific point. And that's something very peculiar about athletes' career, that they are so magnified into these single events. Like most of our own careers don't work that way. Mine certainly doesn't. (laughs) That I work for years and years and years for one specific performance over a week, you know, running for 10 seconds or fighting over three rounds. And to make that the main career point of my entire life for years and years and years, um, it's very tough. On the other hand, the athletes have no control over these kinds of things. They just have to swing with whatever gets prepared for them when they get there. It is a fascinating story that will continue to get more and more fascinating as we get closer to it because it's either going to get better, it's either going to sound like problems are being solved, or it's, I think, going to be more and more noise coming from the problems that are there. And Michael, uh, we will hopefully have you back closer to the time uh, this happens. Michael Heine, Dr. Michael Heine from the International Center for Olympic Studies at Western University. Thanks for the time tonight. Thanks a lot. I enjoyed it.